Open our Bibles to James chapter 5, where we are making a study of this epistle of James to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Those Jews that by various incursions into their nation by foreign armies had been hauled to various places around the Roman Empire. James wrote an epistle of five chapters to them. And we want to consider the fifth chapter beginning this morning. The rain's pouring down outside. It's a dreary, overcast, ugly day, you might say. But it's not. Let's be thankful for that rain that waters the earth, that prepares the soil for spring plantings, that will yield food for all of us. James chapter 5. As in many of the epistles in the New Testament... When you come to the last chapter of it, it's as if the writer had many things on his mind, was running out of space, didn't want the epistle to be too long, and so a number of miscellaneous exhortations are thrown in the last chapter. We can think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Romans chapter 12, and other places like that, Hebrews chapter 13. And so it is in James chapter 5, there are seven lessons in these 20 verses, and if the Lord will help us, we shall try to cover four of them today. It is a shame that we have never known or seen real persecution or suffering. Because of that, we can't appreciate some of these words of Scripture. We can't appreciate the comfort that the words we're about to look at would provide for those that were suffering persecution. Under the hands of the Roman Empire, those who professed the name of Jesus Christ and called him a king were held guilty of sedition. They were offered as fodder for the Colosseum. They were burned as torches in Nero's garden. They were killed by various means. When the Roman Empire collapsed, the Roman Catholic Church took over with its inquisitions of what used to be called the Dark Ages until we sanitized our educational system, and now it's called the Middle Ages. If you're over 40, when you went to school, they were called the Dark Ages. They were dark because Europe was as ignorant as a stone, because Roman Catholic Church was in authority. Education didn't exist, except for a few privileged sorts. And Christians were pulled apart on racks, drowned in rivers, died in prisons, banished from their homes for a thousand years. We don't know anything about that. What's the most you're going to suffer today? You pray before your meal in a public place and someone mocks you? That's about the most serious I can think of. We don't know about real persecution. We don't know about coming together in an assembly where during the past week, Someone has been killed for their Christianity, and we have the very real fear that it could happen to someone else in the coming week. In our present world, you know, Christians are killed once in a while in places like Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, and other dark countries that are either under Muslim influence or other influences. But we don't really know persecution, so when we come to verses like this, we don't appreciate them as much. And that's a pity. The first six verses are the first lesson. And they are a prophecy of James about the destruction of the enemies of these believers. Verses 7 through 11 are the comforting words of exhorting these believers to patience that the Lord would come. And deliver them. Much like Psalm 17. Much like 2 Thessalonians 1. Much like Philippians chapter 1 that we had read to us. That's what we want to learn before we take our break. Down through verse 11. We come to the first verse of James chapter 5. Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. This is a prophecy, and here's the first verse of it, that James prescribes God's judgment at the second coming of Jesus Christ against the enemies of these believers. 
The description he's about to make of these men is comparable to the description Eric read from Job 20. It's comparable to what was read from 2 Thessalonians 1 and Philippians chapter 1. We first of all need to ask ourselves and find out who are these rich men? Are these rich brothers in the churches that James was writing? Oh no. Oh no, because the case of these six verses is that there's no hope for these rich men. There's no exhortation to repentance or changing their lives. It's just a guaranteed promise that God is coming to destroy them. No, it's not the rich brothers. We have rich brothers already addressed in this chapter, and they weren't addressed like this. They were addressed that the brother, that the rich brothers have a reason to rejoice. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, because God had revealed to them the vanity of riches so that they could put their trust in something far more durable. Right. No, it's not the rich brethren. Is it the rich Jews of Jerusalem that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ that are about to be swallowed up by Titus and his armies? No, because this is written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, far removed from Jerusalem. We understand these to be the rich enemies that have already, we've already been told about in chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2 just to remind us that if we read the Word of God carefully, there are hints, usually many hints, for us to understand verses that we come to. James chapter 2, we read in verses 6 and 7, I hope that you remember the context, I'll not read it now. James 2, 6, But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? That is an important hint as to the rich men of James 5.1. Because these were persecuted brethren. Remember how the epistle started. In James chapter 1 and verse 2, James said, My brethren, count all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. These scattered Jews were suffering great persecution. When we read Peter's epistles, who wrote the same audience, the Jews scattered abroad, strangers in the earth, because they weren't really part of those nations, they had a different religion. He describes the same thing, that they were enduring great persecution by Gentiles and Jews. Think about a a Christian Jew. You've been hauled captive by, say, the Assyrians or the Babylonians, and you're not living in your nation of Israel, you're living across the Mediterranean Sea, in one of those cities, you're a monotheistic Jew. You're worshiping the God of the Bible. You consider the gods that are worshipped in the city of Ephesus or the city of Corinth or the city of Athens to be pagan imaginations. So you're already marked. You're not a Greek. You're a Jew. You have a different kind of a religion. So the Gentiles don't like you. You find yourself a synagogue where you can go to church on the Sabbath day with other Jews like you, but then you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and you say, I'm no longer a Jew following Moses' law. I'm following Jesus of Nazareth. And the synagogue throws you out. The Gentiles don't like you. Now the Jews don't like you. You are in a rough situation. And so along comes James chapter 5 that's being read from church to church to church to church throughout the Roman Empire where there were the twelve tribes scattered abroad and there is comfort. There is comfort in these verses. James takes up the voice of a prophet and for six verses blasts the rich enemies of these believers who were blaspheming the name of Jesus Christ and hauling them before the judgment seats. The judgment seats were the Roman judgment seats at the provincial centers of the Roman Empire where you'd be hauled before a judgment seat and have to give an account of The charge is laid against you. And these poor Jews, many of them were not Roman citizens, and so they suffered greatly. And it was the rich that had the political influence to haul them in there and get them in trouble, get them imprisoned, or have them put to death. You can read about it in the book of Acts. So we have James chapter 5 and verse 1, and we've answered our first important question. There's so many more things that could be said, but you know that on the back wall hangs this round object that has hands in it that wave wildly at me. It's a clock that's moving. There will, be, there will be an outline on the website for you to look at much more information. I'm just hitting the high points for us to know what these six verses are referring to. 
you're going to see as we make progress through it that there is a great divide between verses 6 and 7. Verse verse 6 is going to end the prophetic judgment against these rich men, and then there's going to be an exhortation to patience based on the word, therefore. When you read any writing, you want to ask what the therefore is therefore, because therefore is a word that draws a conclusion from what has been said previously. And what has been said previously is that the rich are about to be destroyed at the coming of Jesus Christ, and the believers should take comfort in that fact and be patient, establish their hearts, and wait for it. Because it's coming. That's what we, that's, that's the lesson. And brethren, we're assembled in this little place right now, not to entertain ourselves. We didn't have a praise band to entertain you. We don't have a polished speaker to entertain you. All we've got is the precious Word of God. And what that Word of God tells us is, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's going to come to be admired in us in that day. And we're going to admire Him. We're going to rejoice when we see the Lord Jesus Christ come. And He is coming. The same God that made the seven-day week that I've referred to already, the same God that tells us exactly about the origin of the universe and all the heavenly bodies in it, that God said His Son is coming to judge this world. And He will come and He shall not tarry. He is coming. We want to apply... We, we want to also understand when this event is going to take place. This event is going to take place the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand these first six verses of James chapter 5 to be best explained by Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And while it was read to us, please come back and look at it again for just a moment. There's many reasons why we understand it this way. These are twelve tribes scattered abroad. They're far from Jerusalem. They're being persecuted by Gentiles. When was a judgment going to fall on Gentiles? At which time saints would also be judged? Because it says, Grudge not against one another, brethren, lest ye be condemned, for the judge standeth before the door. When were believers and unbelievers, or when are they going to be judged together? By the same presence of the Lord at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Much more could be said, but we would get ourselves all tied up in verse 1 without getting through the next 10. But let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We had it read to us, and I'm thankful for it being read to us. But I, I mean, you read it last night, but it is such a great commentary on James 5. Paul is comforting these Christians in Thessalonica. That's a province in Greece. That's a city in Greece. What we would call Greece today, and it was Greece then. He describes in verse 4, and he commends their patience and faith in all their persecutions and tribulations that they were enduring. 2 Thessalonians 1.4 These people were being persecuted and suffering tribulation at the hands of their enemies. And if you go read in Acts chapter 18 about the city of Thessalonica, you would find that they were accused of saying there was another king and not Caesar, and it caused a great stir and much persecution against themselves. They weren't trying to overthrow Caesar. Christians should always be the best citizens of a nation. We should pay our taxes and work harder and take care of our nation as much as anyone. And they did. But because they preached Jesus was king, Caesar didn't like competitors. And so they were in trouble with the law. But now in verse 5 it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, This tribulation and these persecutions that you are enduring is a manifest token. That means clear evidence of the righteous judgment of God. The fact that they are picking on you for nothing but your faith in Jesus Christ is a clear evidence that they deserve what is coming. And it's clear evidence that you are going to be saved in that day that is coming because you are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. See, there's no suffering today, so we don't even know real Christians. You know, if, if, you, if you were a real Christian and you knew there was a high probability that you were going to be burned at the stake in a coliseum or some other place, it would tend to make your faith real. But the average Christian today doesn't have to give up anything. He can go to one of these seeker-sensitive churches. He's not going to be asked to give up anything that the world enjoys. He can live any way he pleases. 
And he's never going to have to die for his faith. I mean, can you believe that? To die for your faith? It would change us. I hope it wouldn't change us individually, but it would change many Christians. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us that it's a clear evidence that God is fair and right in judging these enemies that were persecuting men, women, and children for nothing but their faith in Jesus Christ. And it also is clear evidence that they would be saved because they were suffering for His sake. Verse 6, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Now notice in verse 4 we had tribulations. In verse 4 we had tribulations. And that was the wicked causing tribulation in the lives of the saints. In verse 6 we have tribulation. It's God He's going to cause some tribulation in the lives of the wicked who have persecuted His children. Verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. That is the lesson of James 5. To you who are troubled, those of you that are being persecuted, those of you that may have lost your husband or lost your wife, lost your children, lost your parents, lost an uncle, by the persecuting fires of the Roman Empire and the Jews that hated Christianity, those of you who are troubled, rest with us. Well, how can you rest in the middle of such a storm? How could the martyrs rest when they were living in the catacombs under the city of Rome? How could you rest? Well, here's the rest. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints. That's the second coming. And it's where we rest. No matter what's going on, even though they were losing their lives, even though they were having their assets taken away, there's a place of rest by remembering Jesus Christ is coming for us. Come back to James chapter 5. Oh, so much more could be said. But we'll hurry on. Look at what he says in that first verse. Go to now, ye rich men, you rich men that are taking these Christian saints before the judgment seats of the Roman Empire and getting the laws turned against them by your political influence. Go to now, ye rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. This is prophetic language. If you read the Bible in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other places like that, you'll read language just like that. Amos, Hosea, Zephaniah. Weep and howl, because God is going to bring misery upon you, and the only response you're going to have is howling in the pain of what's coming, in agreement with 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. And this is at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, He's come at many other times. Sometimes He comes by taking one nation against another nation. Sometimes He comes in supernatural heart attacks, diseases, being afflicted in in His feet for the rest of His life, leprosy. God can come in all sorts of ways, but this passage is the second coming when all injustices shall be righted. When God will come with eyes and see that which is equal. And when a sentence will come from the throne of heaven that will vindicate all the righteous and deliver them and destroy all their enemies. This is coming. And there's no NATO or European common market or United Nations that's going to slow it down. It's coming because the Bible tells us it's coming. And we're Bible Christians. It's that simple. If you don't believe the Bible, then your faith rests on something else. All men live by faith. Either your faith rests on the Bible, or your faith rests on something else. The opinion of some man? How good is that? Your own imagination? All reasoning takes place based on faith in some premise that gets your reasoning started. We start with the Word of God. We have bet our lives in this world and in the next on the Bible. We can look in the Bible and we can see that every social dilemma that faces the world today is plainly answered here. If we were to live by the Bible, 
peace and happiness would reign everywhere. The proofs of the Bible are evident throughout it. But we start with that, and we reason from it, that the Lord's coming just like He says. In verse 2, Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Now notice, that's a perfect tense verb construction. Your riches are corrupted. Not your riches shall be corrupted. This is a prophet. This is the way a prophet speaks. He speaks of those things which be not as though they were. Because God declares the end from the beginning and those things which be not done as if they were already done. And so he says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. The things that you have poured your money into are already corrupting and they shall be corrupted. They're over. There's nothing durable or lasting in them. Your gold and silver is cankered. And the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Now these men were not reading this epistle. These men that are being addressed here were not reading the epistle. Maybe a few of them stumbled upon it. But these words are addressed to the brethren born again from, born again by God that he's about to exhort to patience in verse 7. And this is comforting to them because they're getting this inspired apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to declare the future of their enemies. Try to imagine a more effective way of comfort than to know that you have an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ with the gift of prophecy declaring the ruin of your enemies. Your gold and silver is cankered. You know, even gold and silver, if it's left long enough, begins to oxidize and does not look the way that when you first got it. You know, those of you who have brass, you know that it happens a little faster with brass. But even silver and gold begins to oxidize, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. Do you know what this verse is teaching? That hoarding is sinful. You have heaped up treasure. Do you know what we're supposed to do when God blesses us with material things? We're to be ready to distribute and willing to communicate it. We should want to scatter it and give it away. You're not going to take any of it with you. Why would you want to hoard it up and hold it up? Why would you want to pile it up? Why would you want to fill a bank account? Give it away. Let it do some good. Let it help the poor. Let it further the kingdom of heaven. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you. You are going to have a witness from your own riches. As they dissolve and disappear, and uh, that you have stored up, you are going to have a witness against you in the day of judgment that you should have given that stuff away. You have heaped together treasure for the last days. You've accumulated it, and you're going to be held accountable for it. Do you remember Matthew 25? Matthew 25. Jesus Christ is going to come and gather all nations before Him. And He's going to say to those on His right, to the sheep that are gathered there, He's going to say, Come into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world because you visited Me when I was in prison. You came to Me when I was sick. You clothed Me when I was naked. You fed Me when I was poor. And you fed Me when I was hungry. And then He's going to turn to the wicked on His left hand and say, you did not do these things. And they're going to say, when didn't we do them? And the righteous are going to say, when did we do them? And He's going to say, when you did them to the least of these my brethren, you did them to Me. That's going to be the witness against them that they stored up their riches and were not rich toward other men. Do you remember the, the exhortation of Timothy from Paul to Timothy toward the rich? Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they be rich in good works. What kind of good works? Willing to distribute and willing to communicate. Ready to distribute. Giving the money away to help those that have a need. Hoarders that just accumulate it because they like the looks of a balance sheet that's bigger this year than last year will suffer before God for not dispensing with the good things God gave. Where do you think they got it from? God gave it to them, and they should be giving it to others. And so it becomes a witness against them. And the rust of them, because of... Why does something rust? Because it's not being used. The rust 
of all their assets being accumulated for the sheer pleasure and pride of growth. It shall eat your flesh as it were fire. It would almost be like a fire. It's going to consume you to realize what a vain life you've had. When you go out of this world, you can't take a dime of it with you, and then you're going to give an account for it to the God of heaven who's going to ask how you used the blessings that He put in your life. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. That treasure that you've piled up is going to be a witness against you. It's going to turn to be your enemy. It's going to bring God's judgment. Verse 4, where did they get all this wealth? Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Here in this fourth verse, we have the second sin of these rich men. The first sin is in verse 3. They have hoarded money. They've piled it up. They've heaped treasure together rather than giving it away. The second sin tells you how they got it. Fraudulent business practices. Instead of paying a fair wage, they defrauded men out of their wages. And those men were day laborers. Laborers. Reapers. That would come and reap in a field when there was a harvest to be made. And there a man is basking in barns filled with the, with the harvest of a good crop. And he underpays or defrauds the men that took it from the field and got it into his barn. The reapers. They're crying out at the fraud of these rich men. The persecution and oppression by the rich over the poor and by the rich men over the poor brethren in the, of the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And their cries come up into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Right. Can you remember in Egypt that Pharaoh took the children of Israel and used them for his slaves to build his cities? And it says, by reason of their bondage, their sigh came up into heaven. Their sigh came up into heaven and God took recognition of them and had respect unto them. And He sent Moses to deliver them and He wrecked that nation. He wrecked Egypt. Israel took their gold and silver and the firstborn. Every family was wiped out. And by hail, moraine, and other other evils that God brought upon that land of Egypt, He wasted it. Because a sigh of His people had come up into heaven. Now, did God rescue them the first instance of their sigh? No. Did it take a few years? Yes, it did. But does He eventually come? Oh, yes, He does. Does He hear the sighs? Are there tears written in His book? Yes, they are. And He delivers. The Lord of Sabaoth, Hmm. Is that the Lord of the Sabbath? Jesus said in Matthew 12, 8 and Mark 2, 28 that He was the Lord of the Sabbath. Is this the Lord of the Sabbath and they just had a poor, a poor printing operation of the King James Version 400 years ago? No, it's a totally different word. Totally. It is entirely unrelated to the Sabbath. Sabaoth is a Hebrew word that came into the Greek New Testament's untranslated. That's a Hebrew word. Sabaoth. Totally different from Sabbath. Came into Greek untranslated. What does it mean? Hosts. The Lord of hosts is coming with His mighty angels in flaming fire to take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there was one title for God that the Jews loved, it was the Lord of hosts. Now, let me show you why you should love your King James Bibles. Sabaoth. Come over to Romans chapter 9 and verse 29 very quickly. This is a not a major point, but it's, it's an interesting and pleasant point. I hope when you read the Bible and you read in the Old Testament over and over, the Lord of hosts is His name. The Lord of hosts. That's the captain and general of the armies of heaven. Right. It's the Lord with all the armies of the angels. They're called an innumerable company of angels in heaven. And so when... The Israelites would reference God as the Lord of hosts. It was Jehovah and His armies. Can you, can you conjure up a more powerful image than those three words? Lord of hosts. Romans 9.29 And as Isaiah said before, 
Who's Isaiah? That's a Hebrew word coming into Greek, and it gets altered. That's Isaiah. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. So let's go over to Isaiah chapter 1 and find this place that Paul's quoting and see if our King James Bibles won't give us a little bit of commentary on the word Sabaoth without you trusting me, referring to some Hebrew word. I wouldn't want you to do that. Isaiah 1 and verse 9. Here we have the quote that Paul made in Romans 9.29. Isaiah 1.9. Except the Lord of Sabaoth had left... What does your Bible say? Except the Lord of hosts had left us left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been made like unto Gomorrah. There you have the Bible comparing itself in Romans 9.29 and Isaiah 1.9 so that we know what James chapter 5 is referring to when it says, the Lord of Sabaoth. Back to James 5. James 5.4, there is a Redeemer that takes care of the poor. When men try to oppress men who do not have strength or do not have any to help them, God Himself will come to their rescue. Holding your hand at James 5, look at that powerful verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Holding your hand at James 5, because of course we'll be coming back to it. But let me read this verse to you from Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 8. Do you know what we know about the economic condition of these churches and their enemies? Were these churches of scattered Jews rich or poor? Poor. Does it tell us that? Chapter 2, verse 5. God hath chosen the poor, rich in faith. Their enemies? Is it not the rich that haul you before the judgment seats? Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 8. And this is something that helps when you read the news. You know, if you were to read the news without the knowledge of this, it just leads to despair. I might as well go get a bottle and drink myself into oblivion because the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But we've got this verse. Ecclesiastes 5.8 If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. Don't let it overwhelm you. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Sometimes, if you had been one of these poor Jews and had been hauled before a judgment seat of the Roman Empire, you would think that that was just about ultimate power. You know, the man sitting in that judgment seat could say, take him out and crucify him. You would think that was ultimate power. But when you see the resting of judgment and the oppression of the poor in a province, it says, don't marvel at it. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Don't be confused by it. There's one higher than they, brethren. There's one higher than the highest. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And He will deliver. Let's come back to James 5. These poor laborers that had not been paid, they were crying out by reason of the fraud of their masters, and their cries came up into heaven, and God heard them, and God will right all wrongs in a day that's coming soon. Verse 5. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth, and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Verse 6 is their, verse 5 is their third sin. And that is they lived a a lascivious, luxurious, unrestrained, intemperate, gluttonous, drunken type of lifestyle. Instead of one temperate, disciplined, sober. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth. You've taken all your pleasure here without giving any regard to the God of heaven. You have been wanton, that means unrestrained, just feeding themselves without fear or sobriety. And you know there's other verses that we could turn to for further explanation. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. A day of slaughter is when you go take part of your herd and kill so that there is an abundance of meat and they would have feasts. But they have lived like that every day. Ye have lived like it was a day of slaughter every day indulging in excess. Remember what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4? Same group of people with the same kind of enemies. They count it strange that you don't run 
to the same excess with them in revelings and banquetings and excess of wine? I hope you were able to pull Scripture together. I'm trying to help you a little bit in understanding these words. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. These are men of the world who have their portion in this life. They give no regard to God. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You thought everything was just fine. Do you know what their philosophy is? In the times of the Roman Empire and the Greeks, it was called Epicureanism. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's right here. That's the philosophy of verse 5. That's their third sin. Their fourth sin is in verse 6. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. He, male, singular, pronoun, referring back to the Lord of Sabaoth. He does not resist you yet. It appears that you're getting away with what you're doing, but there is a day coming in which he will bring judgment upon you. Ye have condemned and killed the just. There is no reason in verse 6 for us to leap to the idea that that's the Lord Jesus Christ. These are Gentiles in faraway places away from Jerusalem. What are righteous saints called throughout the Bible? When it says that God's elect shall live by faith, how does it say it? The just shall live by faith. The righteous are called the just, Old Testament, New Testament, throughout. Ye have condemned and killed the just. Where did they do this? Before the judgment seats of chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. When did they do this? Under the Roman Empire. When James was writing these scattered tribes, they had real enemies, identifiable enemies. Ye have condemned and killed just men, right men, like David was in Psalm 17. Which is an evident token of their perdition. The word perdition means judgment. When wicked men who defraud others of their wages, who heap up treasure without giving to the poor, who live an unrestrained life of excess, and then they kill men better than themselves, you have a description of what we have in these first six verses. The prophecy of James comes to an end. Sort of. The prophecy directed toward those men in the second person, the wicked rich. Rich riches do not mean a man is wicked. It's just that most men with riches are wicked. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to crawl its way through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard that, they said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, well, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Once in a while, even God might be able to save a rich man. You say, I don't like the tone of your voice. Well, that's the way it is. That's the tone of voice Jesus had. You know, he had just addressed a rich young man that wanted to follow him, and he said, if you want to follow me, go sell what you have and give it to the poor. And the man went away sorrowing because it was just too hard to give up what he had. Oh, brethren, there is another kind of a man that loves to scatter. There is that scattereth and it tendeth to increase. And there's a a man that holds back more than his meat and it tends to poverty. Learn the wisdom of God's Word. You won't won't be taught that in any finance class anywhere. The Bible teaches it. If you'll give away your money for good causes in the name of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ, He'll bless you abundantly for it. A hundredfold in this world and eternal life in the world to come if I've read Mark chapter 10 correctly. Because Jesus said to Peter, no man has given up anything for me that I don't give a hundredfold back for to here and then eternal life to come. Verse 7, be patient therefore. Now that therefore is there for a reason. And that therefore is because of what I have just told you is going to happen to the wicked rich. Therefore be patient. Hold on because Jesus Christ is coming to rescue you. These first six verses could not be addressed to brethren in those churches because the therefore is not to repent. The therefore is patience. If these men were guilty of these sins, they wouldn't be exhorted to patience. They'd be exhorted to repentance. You know, we know, James knows how to write words like that. He says over, he says over in uh, chapter four, 
My brethren, these things ought not so to be. He doesn't say anything like that in James 5, 1 through 6, because this isn't written to rich brethren. These are written to rich enemies. And now he turns to the brethren and says, based on the prophecy I've just given you, and that Jesus Christ is coming, the Lord of Sabaoth, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brethren. Look what's going to happen to them. Don't despair. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. There's the explanation. Jesus Christ shall ascend from heaven with a shout, with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on His enemies. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. That long sentence there tells about farmers. They go through the pain and trouble of getting seed in the ground. And then they have to wait and wait and wait. They have long patience, it says. Long patience for the early rain. Long patience for the latter rain. The early rain's the first rain that dissolves that seed and gets it to spring up. The latter rain plumps and hydrates produce before it's finally harvested. The Lord worked it out very well. You can go through the Old Testament and find over and over the early and the latter rain. But that poor farmer, you know, he gets out there and, you know, we have an early rain. What do we call it? You know, where I came from, it was called April showers bring May flowers. I like living down here a whole lot more than up there. Down here, I can almost say February showers bring March flowers. Well, I hate six-month winters. I love two-month winters, December and January. That's a little longer than that, but I like to tell myself that it's only two months here in South Carolina instead of Michigan. Have you ever heard April showers bring May flowers? Well, early and latter rain, but you know how much patience that takes to go out in the spring and put everything you've got. It's called your seed corn. You put everything you've got and invest it in the ground, and you can't see a thing except plowed fields, and then you've got to wait. And you're wondering, is it going to happen again this year? Is that little tiny seed of corn that I put in there going to grow into a 12-foot corn of stalk with another ear on it that has 800 times what I put in the ground so that I get an 8,000? No, that's not correct. That's 80,000% return on my investment. And he waits. And he waits. And he has to go out there and beat off animals. He has to beat off insects. He has to beat off weeds. And he waits. And he waits. But then he gets the fruit. The reward comes in the end. And if these brethren would hold on and be patient, the Lord was coming for them and He was going to deliver them in the very same way. So it says in verse 8, Be ye also patient. As farmers have to be patient, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Read the Word of God about the coming of Christ. Get firmed up in believing His promises. Look for His coming. Remember that He's coming. Don't let this slip from you. Do you, know what, do you know when the second coming of Jesus Christ is described in 1 Thessalonians 4, the concluding words are, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Because there's so much comfort in those words that Jesus Christ is coming. And that was to the Thessalonians. This is to the scattered tribes abroad. Comfort one another. Jesus is coming. He's going to come and destroy our enemies. And He's going to come for us and take us to heaven. For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. You know, Paul said that we're waiting for a salvation that's nearer than when we believed. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 11. So it continues to draw nigh. I love the wisdom of the God of heaven who did not tell us when Jesus Christ was coming the second time. When Paul was pressed in 2 Thessalonians 2, he did tell us two events that had to come first so that those Thessalonians would not be We're anxious about the coming. But other than that, we don't know when. And so guess what? We end up living every generation as if the Lord could come. But we know in the year 2007 that the two things mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2 have already come. We are not waiting for Daniel 7 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 Timothy 4 and other passages to be fulfilled. Because they've already been fulfilling in the world. That's why we are historicists when it comes to understanding Bible prophecy. We're not waiting for some big pile of events that has to happen on this earth before Jesus can come. 
There needs to be a loosing of Satan to deceive the nations one more time. We could already be in it, and the Lord's going to come. It's drawing nigh. And if it was nearer than when Paul believed, it is certainly nearer than when Paul thought it was nearer. Verse 9, In light of that coming, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. This, is an impo- this, this verse helps us understand this is the second coming because this is judgment that's going to happen against these believers. And so here's another reminder. Do you know the churches of the New Testament are full of so much strife? Let's not have any strife in our churches. Remember chapter 3 about bitter envying and strife in your hearts? Here he's got to bring it up again. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. If you have grudges and strife and cliques and differences and fighting in the churches of Jesus Christ, then when He comes, you're going to be held accountable for it. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. He hasn't entered yet. But oh, when He grabs that knob and opens that door and comes through it to judge the world, it will be one terrible event if you're living with grudges against your brethren. Verse 10, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. He moves to another argument to encourage them. He's told them the Lord's going to come and destroy your enemies. The Lord's going to come and be a judge. The Lord's going to come just as surely as a harvest comes to a farmer. And now he says, let me give you one more reason to be patient and wait for the coming of the Lord. Think about the prophets. They were afflicted. You know, whenever there's been a man on this earth who has truly preached the Word of God, men will persecute him, criticize him, and pick on him because they hate that Word. Go back as far as you want. Do you want to go back to Enoch? Do you want to go back to Enoch and read about all the ungodly speeches that ungodly men made? You can read about it in Jude 1, verses 14 and 15. Do you want to go back to Noah? Noah preached for 120 years and no one believed him. But I'll tell you what, he was dry. And so the the Lord tells us, take, my brethren, the prophets. Let's just pick the body of men called prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. They put up with it, and in the end, they were all the winners. Look at Elijah. Ahab and Jezebel chased him around like crazy in the nation of Israel. How did he die? A chariot came down, taxi service from heaven. A chariot came down and took Elijah into heaven. He didn't die. He got taken up by angels. You can read about it in the first couple chapters of 2 Kings. You say, well, when I read about Elijah, he didn't look very patient to me. Well, he had a few bad moments. But listen, we're about to read about Job, and Job had a few bad moments. But I want to tell you something about the pity of the Lord. He overlooks your bad moments to look at your overall patience. He knows you're going to have a few bad moments. I love that. Do you know Job was a prophet? I know that my Redeemer liveth. Amen. And that he shall stand in the latter day upon me. Yeah, he was a prophet. Was he patient? Look at the next verse. Verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. We count them happy. Where's the accountants in here? We count them happy which endure. Do you really want to see blessing? Look through the Bible for men who endured... Affliction, tribulation, trouble. We count them happy which endure. Did Joseph endure some things for 13 years? Where did he end up? We count them happy which endure. Did Esther endure some things? We count them happy which endure. Did Daniel endure some things? I didn't like his minor surgery. I'm going to call it major. I don't like a lot of things that happened to Daniel. Do we count them happy which endure? How about David? Did he have to run and hide from Saul? We count them happy which endure. And what's a great example? It's Job, and it's right here in this 11th verse. Ye have heard, ye have heard from their Bible story books from the Old Testament or from the reading of the Old Testament. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord. You saw what happened to him when you got to the end of the book of Job. That the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Very pitiful and tender mercy. It sure looked bad in the beginning. 
everything possible that we could imagine happened to Job short of him dying. Whether you could look at his friends, let's go backwards. His friends, his wife, his health, his skin, from the top of the crown, his head to the sole of his feet, all of his assets, all of his children, everything was ripped away from him in rapid succession. Ye have heard of the patience of Job. Because though Job lost it a little bit, the Lord still looked at him overall that he did not curse God or charge him foolishly. It tells us that in chapter 1. And overall, God considered him to have endured a very severe trial that he sent him. And we've seen the end of the Lord. What is the end of the Lord? What the Lord does in the end to those who have patience under affliction. Job got twice back everything that he lost before, and he lived a long life to enjoy it. Down to the children of the fourth generation, God blessed Job abundantly. What's the lesson for us from these 11 verses? The lesson for them was, don't be discouraged by these rich men that are hauling you before the judgment seats and destroying your lives, condemning you, killing you, and blaspheming the name of your Savior because the Lord of Sabaoth is coming to rescue you. And when he comes, he's going to come with a reward and he's going to take us to be with him. We are to endure. You know, when we look at these 11 verses, I can't, I can't relate to you about suffering and persecution like they faced because we don't face that type of persecution. However, we face other difficulties where there is in our soul sometimes the thoughts of quitting or giving up. But be patient, brethren. Endure those afflictions, because there is a reward coming. The Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming from heaven. And He will reward when He comes. And He will right every wrong. And He will turn this world upside down. And with His mighty angels and flaming fire, He will wreak vengeance on the enemies of God. And those that love His appearing, and those that look for His appearing, He is going to come with a crown of righteousness. Brethren, do not be discouraged in every day. We ought to comfort each other with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one of the principal facts of the gospel that Jesus Christ is coming again. And we want to be ready and waiting for Him with joy in our hearts to admire Him in that day. And the Bible tells us plainly that there is nothing that can happen to you here that I reckon, I'm using the Bible words, that I reckon can be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. Brethren, the Lord's already done a reckoning. Nothing that happens to you here will ever touch the glory that He is going to show when He displays that we are His children to the universe. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.